Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Hello, and welcome to Crime and Spirits, your new favorite true crime and cocktail podcast. I'm your host, Bree. And I'm your other host, Suze. We're best friends who are obsessed with true crime, and we love a good themed cocktail. So we took our two favorite things and turned them into a podcast. I'm the resident bartender here at Crime and Spirits, so every time we get together, I mix up a drink that ties into the episode in some way, shape, or form, and then I teach you how to make one for yourself. That way, you can sip right along with us. We like to keep things conversational around here, so expect some tangents on occasion, as well as some cursing here and there. Think of us as a cross between Dateline and Girls' Night. So, come hang out with us every week while we learn a little something new together. We love to chat with you about whatever, really, but mostly true crime. You better buckle up, Buttercup. And sip tight. Let's get on with the show. Woo! Hello, and welcome to Crime and Spirits. We are so happy you could join us today. As always, we are your hosts. My name is Bree. And I'm Suze. Thanks so much for stopping by. We're so happy you could be here. Today, we are going to discuss a really interesting story. It was recommended by Mark, aka the boyfriend, <laughs> as per usual. It's a good one this time, though. It's very interesting. This was one that neither, correct me if yes, I'm wrong, but nope. neither one of us knew of before we got into it. I've never heard of it. Nope. So this was a very fun learning experience. I say fun loosely, but this was a learning experience for the both of us. Yes. We've got a really interesting case. So if you don't already know by the title you clicked on, we're going to be talking about the disappearance and murder of Jerry Michael Williams. This is a story that intertwines elements of betrayal, deception, and a seemingly perfect crime. On a December morning in the year 2000, Jerry Michael Williams disappeared without a trace while on a hunting trip. Initially presumed to be a tragic accident, suspicions soon arose, casting a shadow of doubt over his disappearance. That is putting it mildly. (laughs) (laughs) This is a dark and twisty story, entangled in a web of lies and secrets. A quick heads up, as you know per use, this story does include the discussion of gun violence. There are some interesting turns in this case, but we totally understand if this kind of thing is not your jam. No worries at all. We will catch you next week. We know that the topics covered here are incredibly sensitive in nature and are not for every listener. You should always use discretion when choosing what podcast to listen to, especially one like ours. We are definitely a podcast geared more towards adults, mostly because of the whole alcohol thing. Well, there's that. (laughs) We do love it when you sip along with us, but we do want to make sure that you are doing so responsibly. So just, you know, safety first. We can't stress it enough. But I believe that's all the business that we have to attend to. So let's talk about some drinks. Yes, ma'am. So what should we mix up? This is (laughs) honestly a weekly conversation that I have with myself. I like to use the internet to search recipe ideas. I watch reels on Instagram if I really have no ideas. This was one of those weeks. So thank you, internet. I appreciate (laughs) the hard work you've been doing. The French Blonde is what we'll be making this week. It's a drink that I'd never heard of to go with a case I've never heard of. So oh, I like it. (laughs) New things all around here. I've heard of all the ingredients and I like them all separately. So I thought, what the hell? Let's put them all in one cup and see how it goes. (laughs) What could go wrong? (laughs) Right. Um, This is more of a treat yourself cocktail. So if it's not your jam, I totally get it. This also according to the interwebs, happens to be Taylor Swift's new favorite cocktail. 
If you're into that kind of thing, Swifties, how you doing? (laughs) I'm decidedly not a Swiftie. Same. Um, I just thought the drink sounded damn delicious. It looks really pretty. And because Brie and I had everything we need on hand, that helps a lot. We do love that. Because that way I didn't have to rush out and buy anything crazy. We especially love that. (laughs) So I will say that it makes research a lot easier when Taylor Swift likes something because that means the whole world seems to care about it (laughs) immensely. Um, According to the site Parched Around the World, quote, the French blonde is known for its delicate balance between sweetness and tartness and its combination of herbal, floral and citrus flavors. Oh. Well, the juniper notes of gin add herbal depth. Lilith and elderflower bring subtle sweetness and florality, all of which are balanced by the tartness of grapefruit juice. It usually comes with bitters. I didn't have lemon bitters, so we did exclude that, but more oh. on that later. Okay. Um, simply put, the French Blonde is a refreshing cocktail that's not overly sweet, has a refreshing citrus punch, and finishes with a subtle floral complexity. End wow. quote. Okay. All in all, I'm in. That all sounds delicious to me. I like shit like this. I like most I love, of the things. I liked the words you I said. I liked all the words that they were <laughs> saying. So, and I do like gin. So, if you prefer vodka, by all means, throw some vodka in there instead of gin. I do have to say, though, I also was a vodka girly pretty diehard until we started this podcast. And Suze has opened my eyes to the Empress and to the botanist. It's and true. I, my life has been changed. So if you're going to splurge on any of the booze that we use, I highly recommend it be yes. one of those two. Just give it a shot. You can even, I think the botanist even sells like the smaller bottles, not Ooh. airplane size, not full size. It's the size in between. Okay. So if you, if you want to just test it out before mm-hmm. you commit to a whole butt ton of it, by all means do it that way. But I cannot recommend it enough. It's really good. So and this good. is literally, I literally stuck my nose up at it like i would never but here we are and it turns out we love it every time she's like it's a gin-based drink i'm like "Ooh, what are we using (laughs) so about the history of the french blonde with gin as with all histories that i find things are a bit murky stories vary about who created this drink and when which seems to always be the case with stuff like this One story goes that it was created in the 1920s in Paris by a bartender who was inspired by the French 75, which is a gin and lemon based cocktail. Mm. They wanted to make a similar but more feminine version. So allegedly (laughs) the shade of the drink was a golden esque, hence the name French Blonde. We're using ruby red grapefruit juice because I prefer it. So ours is a beautiful blush pink color. It's a really pretty pink. But if you like regular grapefruit juice, by all means. Um, So another story goes that a professional bartender in 1950s New York City created the cocktail and had similar aspirations to our Parisian bartender. He wanted a more modern twist, and so he added elderflower liqueur to give it a delicate floral flavor. So as per usual, no one really knows the whole story or the true story. We just kind (laughs) of know it's a contemporary twist on a classic recipe with definite French inspirations. Mm. Okay. I dig it. Again, I'm all in. Yeah. As far as the ingredients go, there are not many here. It's just four ingredients. If you're not using the bitters, the bitters would make it five. Some of them can be a little pricey or hard to find given the way the world currently is and the fact that PA has all the same things at practically every store. Um, We, however, have everything it takes to make the French blonde between our amazingly stocked bar and my personal stash of random crap that I like. (laughs) Um, The OG recipe calls for a dry gin. I mostly hated that idea, so we're just going to go with botanist. It's a nice herbaly gin. You really can't go wrong. 
It is dry, but the combination of 22 herbs and botanicals grown on an island and hand-picked makes it one of the best, Mm -hmm. in my humble opinion. Can confirm. Um, Elderflower liqueur also comes in many different brands. The most famous is St. Germain. However, we found that the St. Elder brand of elderflower liqueur is just as good and actually cheaper. Mm -hmm. You will need fresh grapefruit juice, or in our case, fresh out of the bottle. (laughs) Thank you, Ocean Spray. (laughs) lemon bitters if you can find it i wasn't able to mm. I, you can order it on amazon i guess come to find out oh. my friend ling told me that yesterday oh. but by that point it was a little too late and i honestly never thought to look on amazon i don't know why but i also wouldn't have thought to look there because it is alcohol they do card me when i buy it at like tops because they sell it at like tops or giant eagle is all bitters alcohol i believe so yes huh is it one of those things where like it technically has alcohol in it, but like it's a very get small away amount with selling it via the Internet? Yeah. Now I have questions. I know. I haven't looked into it yet, but I'm definitely going to because yeah. if I can get all these fancy bitters. We'll report back. I will. I will let you know. <laughs> It's not vital to the operation. The one recipe I looked up actually said that she didn't have it, so she didn't use it. And I was oh, like, well, hell yeah. Love that. <laughs> That's how I bartend, Here too. Here we are. <laughs> um, and last but not least, you'll need Lilette Blanc. What the hell is that, you may be asking? Mm-hmm. Because I also asked that when my friend recommended it to me. I actually bought it for a white Negroni. Oh. Which is also delicious. Mm-hmm. That sounds familiar, but... I can't place where I've heard it before. Yeah, Moving we'll make on. it one of these days. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Lilette Blanc is a French aperitif, which is produced in the Bordeaux region. According to their own website, Lilette comes in three shades, if you will. The Blanc, the Rosé, and the Rouge. Oh. So white, yeah, blush, like wine, red. Yep. Yeah. All three call for a base of Bordeaux wine topped up with uh, macerated liqueurs that are then blended and aged in French oak. Huh. Lilette Blanc is what we're using, so the white one. Um, like with most things, seek the secrets of production here and ingredients mm. are kept under lock and key. It's mm-hmm. another one of those things where like everybody knows part of it, but nobody really knows all of it kind of thing. Yeah. We do know that the dominant grapes here are Similion and Sauvignon Blanc. On the nose, you should get floral, orange blossom, fresh mint, and vanilla. Oh. From the taste, you should get candied orange, orange blossom, honey, pine resin, and exotic fruit, which may seem like a lot. But honestly, this is a very light flavor, in my opinion. It's not like really heavy duty. It's not punching you in the face with pine resin or orange blossoms or any of that nonsense. I'm going to have to try it separately after this. Oh, you will. Don't you worry. (laughs) I know we've discussed this before, but just a reminder, an aperitif is an alcoholic beverage usually served before a meal to uh, stimulate the appetite. And it's usually dry rather than sweet. Common mm. choices of an aperitif can include vermouth, champagne, gin, ouzo, or some styles of dry sherry, but not usually cream or blended sherry, which is very sweet and rich. Mm. An aperitif may be served with uh, an amuse-bouche or like little snacky things like crackers, cheese, pate, quiche, olives, that kind of thing. Okay. Aperitif is a French word derived from the, the Latin verb aperier, which means to open. So to like open your tummy up your for half- food. Yes. yes. All right. ABV is low here. And once you crack it open, you will need to keep it in the fridge. Okay. Because it can sour just like wines. You know what I mean? That makes sense. Some people prefer it, I guess, when it's aged a little while. But ours is relatively fresh here. So don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we've learned some stuff, it's time to make the actual drink. 
Again, it's super easy. We're putting it in a martini glass. We just pop ours in the freezer to chill while we're mixing. To a shaker tin with ice, we added three quarters of an ounce of the St. Elder elderflower liqueur, one ounce of the botanist gin, two ounces of grape juice, and two ounces of Lillet Blanc. If you have the lemon bitters, you want to test it out. Three dashes is what the recipe calls for. If you don't, leave it out. It tastes just as good in my opinion. Um, shake all of that up for around 30 seconds so it's nice and frosty cold and well blended and then just strain it into your martini glass. Wham bam, thank you ma'am. Is that easy? When Suze tried it, she looked at me and she goes, you will be pleased. So I'm excited <laughs> to try it. It's very good. It's a very light flavor. Ooh. But like really refreshing. Like this would be delicious to have all summer long, I feel. Mm -hmm. All right, Taylor Swift, I see she you. Might, she might be on to something here. I don't like to admit that. but She's got some bops. I'll give credit where credit is due. I'm not going to lie. Mostly I'm just, we're recording this prior to the Super Bowl. Yeah. So I'm just ready for that to be over <laughs> so we can stop hearing about it. LOL. Pretty much. I feel that. Now that I live with two people who are obsessed with football. Right. I'm very aware. Yep. You're like, oh, I'm good. <laughs> I don't actually think we're watching it, though. I think Mark wants to do anti-football and just watch Dragula all day. Oh, so nice. here we are. I dig <laughs> it. Not mad about it. Right. All right, friends. While you wrap up your mixing, pouring, shaking, whatever it is you're doing, we're just going to take a brief minute to hear a word from one of our friends over at the Podmoth Network. Hey, Freaky Friends! It's Michelle and Melissa from the Freaky Fridays podcast. We are sisters in separate states and love to talk about all kinds of spooky, freaky, and scary shit while drinking and laughing through our fear. Join us Fridays as we delve into everything from the world of the paranormal to scary movies to creepy stuff we find around the internet. Subscribe to Freaky Fridays wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Sleep tight. Make sure you leave the lights on. Freaky Fridays is a proud member of the Podmoth Network. For more awesome pods, check out podmoth.network. All right, my friends. Are we ready, Freddy? Let's do this. We're going to start things off by telling you guys a little bit about who Jerry Michael Williams was. Just a little background information on him. He grew up in Bradfordville, Florida, which is about 20 to 25 minutes outside of Tallahassee, Florida. His friends and loved ones called him Mike. That was his preference while growing up. He was raised in a modest double-wide trailer by hardworking parents. His father was a Greyhound bus driver and his mother was a daycare provider. Mike and his older brother Nick knew the value of perseverance and sacrifice from an early age. The parents made that choice to not like buy a more traditional home or invest a lot of money in that because they wanted to save their money to send the boys to North Florida Christian High School. Oof. Get ready for a lot of things with a lot of names today. Yes. A lot of them have like six names. I don't know why. <laughs> there's just as I was going through her research, I was like, man, there's a lot of like Really weird agencies involved uh -huh. in this case. It's all real. None of it's made up either. <laughs> right. This is a private school, so there was a hefty tuition attached to them being able to go there. But the family wanted a better education for the boys, hopefully to have a life with very little financial struggle. So fun fact, this high school was actually founded in the era of segregation, which was a relic of a time when racial divides scarred the nation's landscape. 
While the school had shed its discriminatory practices by the time Mike attended, its origins kind of lingered in the in the shadows like a ghost. It's one of those things where it's still like majority white. It's not really in practice, but things are right kind of vibe. Right. So despite this dark history, Mike thrived during his high school years. He excelled in pretty much everything he tried, be it academics, sports, his chosen extracurriculars. He served as student council president and still managed to kick butt on the football field. It was during his teen years that Mike also discovered his passion for duck hunting. He spent countless hours navigating the marshes, shotgun in hand, just enjoying, you know, a moment of solace amidst the chaos of adolescent life, especially when you're busy like that. Like I was I just had a part time job. Right. And I was like, this is too much. (laughs) Yeah, I did sports and Speech I danced, and debate I danced and a little. So I mean, I, I tried to do extracurriculars, just nothing stuck. Right. I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot to do, especially when you're growing up. But mm-hmm. Mike seemed to have a pretty good handle and on he, all of it. Yeah, he was killing it. Yeah. It was also during this time that he crossed paths with Denise Merrill, a fellow student whose very presence would forever change the trajectory of Mike's life. After graduating from NFCS, Mike attended Florida State University, where he studied political science and urban planning. Before graduating from FSU, he was hired by Ketchum Appraisal Group. Mike was a property appraiser there, and according to the company's owner, he was, quote-unquote, the hardest-working man he ever saw. Now, if it wasn't kind of obvious there, Mike and Denise started dating in high school. They actually worked on the student council together. I also learned that she was a cheerleader. That checks out for the football team, I'm guessing. Right, Right, exactly. So they went on to marry in 1994. Mike was incredibly devoted to his top three favorite things, which was his wife and eventual family, his job, and of course, duck hunting. The latter was a hobby that he steadily kept up with throughout the years. I know it seems like we're kind of like harping on that, but... It'll make sense. It'll it'll matter. (laughs) And, you know, he had a sweet, sweet $200,000 a year job, which enabled him and Denise to build a really good life together. They purchased a home in a small upscale subdivision on the east side of the city. And later on in 1999, the couple welcomed their daughter into the world. So it seems like all of Mike's parents' hard work and sacrificing actually really paid off. Mike is like a stellar human with a great job, great family. That he, everything that his parents had hoped for. Yes. And then some probably. I'm sure. So then in 2000, Mike's dad unfortunately passed away. This tragic event made Mike look at the world a little bit differently. Realizing the importance of securing his daughter's financial future in case of his own untimely demise, Mike decided to acquire a life insurance policy. It was about halfway through the year when Mike and Denise moved forward and purchased a $1 million policy covering Mike. This was purchased through a man named Brian Winchester, who just happened to be a childhood acquaintance of Denise. Also, I learned today, literally just on the off chance because I was trying to find footage from the trial and stuff to watch. That Brian also went to high school with them. Yes. But so did his wife. Oh. That he eventually went on to marry. His wife, Kathy, they actually got married the same year that Denise and Mike did. Weird. And they had a child right around the same time that Denise and Mike had a daughter as well. Oh. So this this couple and these two families kind of were palling around a lot. Okay. So context for later. Yeah. 
So after this life insurance purchase, uh, Brian and Mike actually went on to become the best of friends. Things seemed to be going quite well for the Williams family, even though they were still grieving the loss of Mike's dad. In fact, Mike and Denise were scheduling vacations for the future as well as planning on trying to conceive another child. So there were plans for the future here. And a lot of them, it seemed. Fast forward to December 16th, that very same year, Mike's alarm clock went off well before the sun had begun to even peak over the horizon. His wife, Denise, was used to Mike's early mornings, so she just continued to sleep. He eagerly attached his boat to his vehicle and further prepared to hit the road because the man was going to go duck hunting on Lake Seminole. Loved it. So a little fun fact about the lake. It was it's actually like more of a large reservoir, if you will located around 50 miles northwest of Tallahassee. This is the spot where three streams merged to form the Apple. I literally practiced this one. Appalachicola yeah. River, I think. My brain just wants to say Appalachia and right. just stay from that. <laughs> but then the cola comes in and I practiced and I practiced and it, doesn't, it never matters. So these three streams form a river. And it creates the perfect little habitat for things like ducks and hunters alike. Mike kissed his wife goodbye and left with a promise to return in plenty of time for their anniversary celebration. It was their sixth wedding anniversary, and they actually had plans to spend the evening in the cute little town that was located next to the lake. Hours passed and noon approached without any sign of Mike's return. Denise began to grow concerned as she realized how late her husband actually was in coming home. She called her dad, hoping that he might have heard from Mike or perhaps had seen his truck at the lake. She also called Brian, and the two men immediately sprung into action. They drove to the lake and looked in the areas that Mike was known to frequent. On the Florida side of the lake, because technically it's located in the southwest corner of Georgia, if you really want to know, it sits right along the Florida border, there was a remote boat launch. There, the two men found Mike's 1994 Ford Bronco. Their hearts sank, however, when they spotted the familiar vehicle parked by the water's edge, but without Mike or any sign of him anywhere nearby. They quickly realized that something was terribly, horribly wrong here. So they called for help, and some investigators from the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission were the first to respond. Law enforcement arrived on scene soon after, and a coordinated effort to comb the lake and its surrounding areas began. But fate seemed to conspire against them because just as the search was gaining some momentum, a fierce storm swept in. And if anybody knows Florida, they know that literally at any moment, a storm can just ruin your whole day. Those don't fuck around either. There's wind and rain and like the whole nine yards. Mm -hmm. Like it's just not that pleasant. (laughs) Right. And the conditions just became way too treacherous to continue. So this essentially forced the search teams to retreat and regroup. So the FFWCC spearheaded the initial search for Mike because it had been specifically reported as a missing hunter. I'm not super familiar with like how that kind of stuff goes down, but I don't really either. It makes sense, I guess, that it would kind of be. Well, because you do have some other things to contend with in Florida. So, (laughs) right. Absolutely. They seem to be more specialized and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, with an empty boat as their only lead, the agency just kind of launched right into a search and rescue mission, hopeful, yet tinged with a foreboding sense of uncertainty. Quote, we didn't have a whole lot to go on, except there was an empty boat and the guy didn't show up. There was nothing there that we had from the scene that suggested foul play at all. End quote. That was a direct response from one of the officers that was kind of 
recalling back to what had happened. What had happened was. <laughs> so as the search unfolded, focus centered on the expanse of water surrounding the cove near where Mike's truck had been parked. The empty boat was found thanks to a vigilant helicopter pilot roughly 225 feet from the ramp. Retrieving the boat itself yielded little insight, however, save for Mike's shotgun, which was found nestled in its case in the boat. There was no sign of Mike at all. The area, which is known as Stumpfield, used to be an orchard of some sort. So stumps, quite literal stumps from trees, <laughs> both visible and concealed, posed a hazard to navigating the waters in that area specifically. So this led investigators to consider that maybe Mike had encountered one, crashed his boat, and sunk into the 8 to 12 feet deep water below. They surmised that his waders would have filled up with water and weighed Mike down, causing him to drown. Which, I mean, that's a plausible theory. Yeah, but like, here's the thing about that. If Mike had drowned, his body would have eventually floated to the surface, which would have made for a relatively easy discovery, right? Investigators were sure of this, and they assured the Williams family that his body would surface, like other drowning victims, within three to seven days. They did mention that it could have perhaps taken a little bit longer due to the temperature dropping and just the weather yeah. generally. Right. But they didn't expect it to be longer than a week and a week and a half. And, you know, despite all of that and despite exhaustive efforts, there was just no trace of Mike anywhere. Like he just poof, vanished. Days turned into weeks and still nothing. A fleeting hope flickered with the discovery of a hunting hat, but investigators couldn't connect it to Mike definitively. Recovery efforts persisted, but as February approached, the search yielded no definitive answers leaving the Williams family in a state of agonizing limbo. It has been suggested that the search might have continued if Denise had shown any real interest in it. Apparently, she wasn't that involved in the search when compared to other family members, and apparently she wasn't very involved with, like, the media aspect of things either. Right. So Which she... To a degree, I can understand. If I'm worried about a missing family member, the last thing I would want to do would be on television. Like, <laughs> Especially considering the circumstances. I mean, it... If it's a hunting accident gone tragically wrong, you know what I mean? Right. Like, so apparently she was not really that interested. So they scaled back their efforts. The case was still technically open. It just wasn't being given as much attention in the way of resources at that point. Which... Sadly, I, I get I get it. It is you know? the way of things, yeah. unfortunately. So the official report read, quote, nothing in investigative or search efforts has produced any definitive evidence of a boating accident or a fatality as of this date, end quote. If Mike had drowned after accidentally falling out of his boat, which we don't know if that's what happened or not, but Mike could be, his body would be the only one out of 80 known deaths in the lake to never have been found. So needless to say, speculation swirled, theories were formed and then faded, but the truth remains stubbornly out of reach. The head of a private search firm that supplemented official efforts near the end of the search offered a possible explanation, and I quote, with the wildlife around, I would guess that the alligators have dismembered and have stored the remains in a location that we would not be able to find, end quote. Ew, also. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I mean, there's a lot of alligators and shit down there. Like, I, Right. 
and they're vicious they will drag old ladies and children into ponds (laughs) like and they won't even think twice about it so (laughs) clearly you know this might be a thing Early searchers had reported seeing many gators throughout their search, and some of the officials were willing to accept this as a realistic possibility. And I quote again, everyone knows the lake is full of alligators, said the FFWCC's David Arnett. You look for other answers. Why hasn't the body appeared? So maybe not everybody was on board with an alligator as a possible suspect. At least not 100%. (laughs) It was suggested that perhaps Mike's body had become entangled in the beds of dense hydrilla under the lake's surface. In this scenario, it was then found by the alligators later with turtles and catfish finishing any bits that had been left behind. So in essence, there would be no trace. Is what they're, yeah, right. essentially what their theory was becoming. Right. Which I mean, there wasn't a lot to go on. So I definitely don't blame them for being like, you know what? This might could be it. Well, I'm. And truly, though, I mean, honestly, this is a believable scenario. To an extent, for sure. At least, like, on the surface. Right. I can see how and why it got the traction it did, at the very least. Yeah. Now. Well said. Denise, who had avoided media attention thus far, accepted that her husband was dead. She was pretty much convinced of it at this point. Uh, She arranged for a memorial service to be held for Mike the day after the search ended. Then a breakthrough emerged. A pair of waders, a hunting jacket, and a flashlight surfaced. And in one of the jacket pockets, there was a hunting license with Mike Williams' name and signature on it. Well, would you would you look at that? Quinky dink, How Brie. crazy. Huh. There was something not quite right, though. Which is going to be like a theme here. Yep. I feel like we're going to say that several times. (laughs) There were no teeth marks or any kind of damage done to any of the recovered items. There were zero signs showing that these items had been in the water for eight months. There was no DNA present, so they couldn't even definitively link the clothing to Mike in any kind of way. But yet, despite the absence of proof connecting any of these items to Mike... Denise felt as if they unequivocally proved her husband was dead. And a week later, Denise petitioned the courts to have Mike declared legally dead. A Leon County judge granted this based on those specific items and the assumption that alligators and other water life had consumed the body in its entirety. The official COD reported as, quote, accidental drowning while duck hunting on Lake Seminole. Body has not yet been recovered. So can I just... How do you prove a cause of death when you don't have a body? Right. Like, how are we making it official at that? I have I have so many questions. How, I want to know <laughs> how a judge looked at a pair of waiters and a jacket and a flashlight that still fucking works. Mm. And but was it- like, you know what? Look at all of the not teeth marks. It's so clear that it alligators has, he's been got eaten. him. Also, if he got got by an alligator, wouldn't that have shown in the jacket? I would think because he was wearing the jacket. It was a chilly morning in December when he disappeared. It's not like it was, and it was August chilly in Florida. So, like you know that as soon as it drops below like fifty degrees, none of them know what to do down there. That is like accurate. no offense, you guys. I would feel the same way if I lived there. I just happen to live in like the frozen tundra. Half Where the, the air hurts my face, but also I don't have to deal with alligators, so right. I'm gonna call that I'll a take win. The trade. I'm not complaining. <laughs> just kind of weird. 
Right. All, all of it's weird. And also the fact that she's petitioning the courts to declare him dead, like right after the search ended. Suspicious. Well, you know, this decision allowed Denise to proceed with claims regarding her husband's life insurance policies, which she also did so immediately. She received at a minimum one and a half million dollars. Well, and the, the figures like. I mean, I couldn't find the exact figures. Some said one number, some said another. So it's like she got a lot of money. One of at, the, at the end of the day, YouTube videos I watched earlier today actually said that there was three separate policies. One was for a flat million. One was for like a quarter of a million, and one was for half. Okay. So like the ultimate amount, like the total amount of the policies. Like, these are the ones that were specifically sold by their homie. Yeah. Um, totaled approximately, like, 175 So it would make sense that she would get about one, one and, and a half. half. That's just crazy. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, like, you know, if I had to look at this from both sides, which I really do try to do, I'm immediately suspicious. But also, I guess if you're a grieving mother, like, she does have a kid to take care yeah, of. Yeah, for her, sure. I'm... Nobody really knows what she, at least I couldn't find, we couldn't find what she did for work. Right. Who's to say she wasn't a stay-at-home mom? Well, yeah. And they had a $200,000 a year salary. Like, I mean, one can make an argument. I mean, I guess. I guess. <laughs> I guess. One could. <laughs> so years passed and the ripples of Mike's disappearance echoed throughout the community. Denise flat out refused to discuss the case publicly. She eventually remarried, and wouldn't you just know it? Husband number two was none other than Mr. Brian Winchester. What? Mike's best friend. That's crazy. The couple actually then went on to live in the very same house that Denise had lived in with Mike. Ooh. I mean, it was a nice house, I'm sure. Yeah, but ooh. No, I know. In her notes, she literally wrote the fucking audacity, <laughs> and I was dying laughing. I can't help it. Sometimes <laughs> I've got to include what I feel. I enjoy it. <laughs> uh, now, Mike's mother, Cheryl, here was a different story. She was a woman of unwavering determination. She wasn't buying that her son was dead. Her conviction that he might still be alive fueled her relentless pursuit of the truth. She was not happy with the results of the private search team that she had hired. They were the ones who, you know, suspected perhaps that alligators had eaten him alive slash hidden the parts where they couldn't find them kind of thing. <laughs> she was just unconvinced. I would be fucking pissed if I hired a private firm to search for my son and you came back with alligators did it. It's aliens. <laughs> literally right? that. Like, it's like that meme <laughs> but have you thought aliens yeah fish girl mm. lol so despite facing numerous obstacles including threats that were actually meant to dissuade her she pressed on her efforts to keep mike's case alive ranged from running advertisements in local newspapers to erecting billboards appealing for further information you might be surprised to learn that denise wasn't super chill about that at all and the fact <laughs> That Cheryl wasn't giving up actually strained their relationship, which then further strained her relationship with her granddaughter. That is really sad. That breaks my heart, yes. But also, unfortunately, not shocking. No, sadly. Knowing what I know about Denise. Now, in 2004, Cheryl's tenacity paid off when the Florida Department of Law Enforcement agreed to reopen the case. 
In retrospect, the circumstances surrounding Mike's supposed drowning just didn't add up. The location of where his Bronco was found wasn't one of his usual spots. It also wasn't a spot conducive to launching a freaking boat since it was basically an undeveloped patch of mud. And it's odd that Mike would have picked that spot since there were finished concrete launches, like very close to where this was supposed to have gotten down. And he was known to use the concrete launches in the past, but he wasn't known to use the spot. So things just weren't adding up. Well, and, and like we mentioned, he'd been duck hunting since high school. Right. So he knew what he was doing. It's not like this was his first trip out on the lake or his first time duck hunting or his first Any time launching it, yeah. a boat. Like he knew what he was doing. He so. had a very like strict routine he followed yes, when doing these every things. time. So this is one of the reasons why it was able to get reopened. They started kind of looking at things a little differently. Additionally, the storm that followed Mike's disappearance should have carried the boat across the lake. Yet it was discovered abandoned nearby where the Bronco was. So that didn't really make sense either. Further complicating matters was the condition of the boat itself. Two things here. One, the... What is the word? I, the blades? Yes. Propellers. The, the, yep. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> not damaged at all. Interesting. Um, no part of the boat was damaged as if it had run into a stump of some kind. That would have... I mean, boats are made of like aluminum or fiberglass. Right. Like it would have shown some sort of damage. Right. Absolutely. One would think. <laughs> right. The other thing here, uh, despite the engine being off, the gas tank was full. Now, according to a representative of the boat's manufacturer, if the engine had been running when Mike allegedly fell out of the boat in the way that investigators were claiming, the engine should have stayed on, which would mean that the boat would have just kind of gone in circles until it ran out of gas. Which makes sense. It's almost like the boat wasn't on. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Oh my gosh, I wish I could have like <laughs> taken capture of your face just now. That was so perfect. <laughs> uh, so as investigators delved deeper, they uncovered another peculiar detail. Mike rarely ventured into the wilderness alone. This revelation raised even more questions about his disappearance. Per the FFWCC's Arnett, quote, some things looked unusual right off the bat. Then after a couple, three days, and after the weeks went on, those first things looked even more out of place, end quote. The more Cheryl and the investigators dug, the clearer it became that something sinister was afoot here. What initially seemed like a tragic accident morphed into a complex web of confusion. During the later search effort, facts emerged that cast doubt on the alligator theory. The investigators learned that Matt Oresco, a local herp herpetologist. herpetologist, which is like an amphibian person, pretty much. Um, <laughs> he said that alligators tend to be inactive during the colder winter months. So with the temperatures plummeting and the lake icing over, it was highly unlikely that an alligator would have been out swimming around prowling for prey. The water temperature had dropped to 46 degrees the night Mike disappeared, far too cold for the typically sluggish reptiles to be on the hunt. And I quote, it's highly unlikely an alligator would have been active. All they are doing is maintaining their body temperature. 58 degrees is too cold for an alligator to be interested in food at all. End quote. 58 degrees just happened to be the temperature during the day on December 16th, 2000. So the day Mike disappeared. Mike drop. So... Now a person that actually stutters 
stutters. A person that actually studies alligators is saying it's not physically possible for them to be cold and hunting. You're telling me that they ripped apart an entire human man? No. Don't even get me started. False. So Ronnie Austin, a seasoned investigator, further debunked the notion. Even if an alligator had behaved against its nature and consumed Mike, kind of like what I was just saying, it would have been incredibly likely to have left some kind of evidence because you At guys, something. he was 5'10 and 170 pounds. He that's, wouldn't have been a teeny tiny little snack. That's not an insignificant person, you know? No. And yet there was zero, like literally zero trace of his remains anywhere in that lake. It's a small reservoir. It's not like there's a lot of area for these it's things not like to be it's going. The Atlantic Ocean. It wouldn't just be swept out. Exactly. Orozco you know? <laughs> considered any alligator-related theory to be a quote-unquote stretch, and that it would be very unusual to have the complete disappearance of a full-grown man. Also a direct quote. Also a mic drop, in my opinion. <laughs> right. I'm just feeling like all these professionals are like, you know what? Your theory sucks. Right. Because it's then, not plausible. And then you add the discovery of Mike's waiters, which was nearly six months after his disappearance, which only added to the skepticism surrounding the alligator theory. Because, like, why would Mike have been wearing them in the first place while driving his boat, which is a departure from his usual safety protocol? That's number one. Because according to a friend of his, Mike took safety very seriously. This friend said, quote, as much as he preached that to me, why would he be wearing his waders while driving the boat? Because waders are mildly dangerous. Yeah. They're giant rubber pants. If they fill up <laughs> with water, there's nowhere for the water to go. Exactly. It will just pull you down. Mm -hmm. Again, on the surface, seems like the most logical explanation here. But then right. you're going to put this whole alligator thing in there. And this is where you start to lose me. The other question that investigators started to really wonder about is how did these waders end up in an area with alligator excrement and the reptiles weren't responsible? Hmm. As suspicions mounted, attention turned to other possibilities and the condition of the recovered items suggested foul play rather than a tragic accident. And this was kind of the first moment in this whole entire thing that people really heavily considered the fact that this was more than just an accident. but. The botched initial search and the passage of time had made gathering evidence to prove that almost an now, impossible task. I was going to say we're years in now, you exactly. know what I mean? Like things get lost, forgotten, like very clearly Denise was getting rid of everything Well, and those <laughs> from that, her old life. That happens in like the best case scenarios too. And this, this was, this is this very is, reminiscent of the John Bonet crime scene. Like yes. they thought it was one thing. So they didn't take any they, any kind of precautions. There's a word for that. <laughs> Darn it all to heck fire. It'll come to me. <laughs> all right. So despite the efforts of Cheryl Williams, progress was just frustratingly slow. The involvement of the FDLE, coupled with suspicions surrounding certain individuals, only added to the complexity of this case. Again, rumors swirled. Hope flickered as years passed without any sort of resolution. New leads emerged only to lead straight to dead ends. Psychic revelations and forensic investigations yielded little more than just false hope, which is worse, I think, mm -hmm. <laughs> than not knowing is having that hope and then having it pulled away. I couldn't you know? imagine. With each passing year, Cheryl's determination grew, but bureaucratic red tape and institutional apathy seemed to be insurmountable. 
So by 2006, cold case investigators were no longer returning Cheryl's calls. How rude. I get so angry when I read that kind of shit. Cheryl's pleas to Governor Rick Scott also fell on deaf ears. Her daily letters were just withering away unopened in the case files because she wrote him every day for like a lot of days, Mm -hmm. (laughs) many days. Any new investigation was made extremely difficult by the deficiencies of the original search. Quote, they did not protect the crime scene at all. They botched it, recalled a family friend. By the time investigators began to realize they should have asked more questions initially, that opportunity was gone. Gonzo. Totally. Yep. In 2007, the FDLE had closed the case. Convinced that the alligator theory was wrong, but without any leads or evidence, they couldn't really further investigate. A possible new lead emerged in October of 2007 when Mike's older brother just kind of stumbled across a photograph and the serial number of a 22 caliber Ruger pistol that had once belonged to their father. Mike just so happened to have inherited it after his father's death and he kept it locked away safely from his daughter. Again, safety first. Safety first, smart guy. His widow, Denise, had returned all but one of his firearms to her former in-laws after he was legally declared dead. And this specific pistol remained elusive until a Jackson County Sheriff's investigator sought assistance from the ATF. The investigation took a curious turn when agents visited Denise and her now husband, Brian Winchester. Tensions flared as their attorney delivered the gun to the FDLE. Meanwhile, the Winchesters broke their silence on the seventh anniversary of Mike's disappearance, professing their fervent desire for closure. Yet, there were whispers of a grand jury and possible impending indictments circulating, which casted a shadow over their proclaimed innocence that was hard to shake off after this. Uh, yeah. Because once you see it, once once you hear it, you're not going to be able to unhear it. Right. <laughs> Well, the gun thing is weird, right? Also, they were very suspicious about it. Like they were, be- they were making it weird. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you making it weird? I, I, I understand why there's not a lot of information because, like, we don't need to be prying into victims' life with stuff. But I would be so curious to know what some, what the back and forth between Denise and Cheryl was like, and kind of what her demeanor was. Yeah, throughout this whole process, just. From a curiosity standpoint. Morbid curiosity. I just yeah, want to know. Like, I mean, just with the little information we have, Denise was acting really weird. Yeah. From the word insurance from, policy. From the gate. Yeah. <laughs> so in 2008, the Florida Department of Financial Services Division of Insurance Fraud, I'm just going to go with the DIF, in conjunction with the FDLE, began investigating the case from that angle. So it's fraud. So it's dealing with money. Well, because, mm. you know, now that they're looking at Denise and Brian in a different light, then and they're like, a wait a minute. Dollars. This is kind of fishy. Yeah. Unintended. A little bit. Um, normally, under Florida law, the statute of limitations on that crime is five years, meaning that it would have expired in 2005. But it can be extended by three years under certain circumstances, you know, such as this. <laughs> and I quote from the DIF's lead attorney, Mark Schlein, the circumstances surrounding this case raise many serious and troubling questions. But that's I mean, putting it mildly. I was literally going to say, understatement opinion. of the whole year. <laughs> 
Perry, the FFWCC officer who had been heavily involved in the original search, uh, he added that at the time that if he or any other person investigating had known that there was a large, super large life insurance policy on Mike and who the beneficiary was, that search might have been handled differently again. God damn it. Well, and this is why I think it's noteworthy that it was handled by an organization that was not the police from the gate. Because I feel like had the police been called first or they were the ones that started the investigation, they probably would have been like, let's look at the wife. Well, hopefully they would have been able to collect that information sooner rather than years later. Oh, that happened. That was weird. (laughs) It was noted that Denise Williams' court petition to have her husband declared legally dead mentioned only the Kansas City life insurance company policies Winchester had sold him, omitting other policies through other companies that Mike had obtained through other sources. That's so interesting that there would be a distinction like that. Also, you can't lie in in court. Like, that's a thing. Allegedly. (laughs) You're not supposed to. (laughs) Brian Jones, an expert in insurance law at Florida State University, told a Florida newspaper, The Democrat, that any fraud case would have to rest on more than just those facts already known to have aroused investigative interest. He said, quote, the mere fact that they can't locate the body isn't necessarily something the insurance industry would care about. Heartless, you cutthroat bastards. Right. (laughs) But if Mike was to be proven dead and the beneficiary were to have shown to have been involved, or if he was still alive, as his mother and many residents of Jackson County believed at the time, then an insurance company would strongly consider pursuing a case. I feel like at this point, Cheryl's like, fucking anything please can, can anybody can, like, do literally anything? anybody just try <laughs> no, I, I don't want to say like that they didn't try because i feel like this is a very unfortunate circumstance of just kind of like the chain of command in this right. instance right i don't think that anybody was trying to be like willfully negligent yeah, or anything. I, it wasn't malicious didn't I read like that at it least. was just bad circumstances one after another after yeah. another So by the eighth anniversary of Mike Williams' disappearance, the DIF had closed their case. And I quote, our job was extremely difficult and we were simply unable to develop enough evidence to proceed with the investigation, said Mark Schlein. He added that if any new information were received, the investigation could potentially be reopened. He said, we have suspicions, but what we need is evidence. That's literally, that is this case. Summed up in one sentence. Yes, absolutely. So many suspicions, but literally zero evidence up to this point. (laughs) Now, who's ready for the fucking plot twist? This is where it gets a little crazy. Crazier. In 2012, Denise and Brian Winchester separated, and this was reportedly due to Brian having a sex addiction. Not a whole lot out there about that particular thing, but... Also, I truly don't want to know. I don't care, Yeah, really. (laughs) In 2015, she filed for divorce. Brian opposed it initially, like he was not having it, and he had to be compelled by the court to comply. As a part of that same order, he was also told he had to provide an appraisal of the couple's house, which, if you might remember, was the same house that Denise and Mike lived Mm -hmm. in together. This appraisal was due early in August of 2016. On August 5th, the day when the appraisal had to be filed with the court, Denise left her home to drive to her job at Florida State University. 
While she was talking on her phone with her sister, she saw someone climb over the backseat of her car. Turns out it was Brian. Dun, dun, dun. He then proceeded to take her phone away and began yelling directions at her. She didn't actually want to comply, and she didn't until he showed her a gun. She said later that he claimed this was necessary since she was not taking his calls and was blocking his text messages. That's a sign, sir, to let it go. Yeah. Let it go. Let it go. (laughs) Instead of going where he wanted her to, she pulled into a CVS drugstore parking lot close to the door. Brian then told her that he was planning to kill himself with said gun. He did not want the divorce, and he felt that he had nothing to live for if it went through. He assured her, however, that he did not want to kill her. So at some, I mean, in some way, shape, or form, she was able to calm him down, took him back to where he had parked his own truck at, at a nearby park. Before he went to his car, he took a tan sheet, a different colored plastic sheet, a spray bottle of bleach, and a tool from Denise's car. It's almost like that was like a kill kit. Almost like it was there for a purpose. And before he left her, uh, he made her promise not to go to the police, but she was like, fuck that. So she drove straight to the police after this incident. I mean. Well, yeah, I would have to. <laughs> now, according to a friend of Brian's that was later interviewed by the police, Brian was increasingly concerned by the divorce and not necessarily for the reason you given think. above. Mm-mm. Apparently, according to this friend, Brian was allegedly concerned that Denise would tell police what she knew about, quote, this guy who died 10 or 12 or 15 years ago. Huh. Hmm. I Weird, wonder right? who we're talking about. And so according to this friend, Brian was trying to get a hold of Denise and she was not answering his many, many, many phone calls. So he came up with this plan to wait in her car and hold her at gunpoint. Because that is always the right answer, bro. Desperation, man. Ugh. Does crazy shit. Following this incident, Brian was arrested and charged with kidnapping, domestic assault, and armed burglary, with two of the charges being felonies. Denise then requested protection orders, saying that she feared for her life and her daughter's, which in this situation, fair. Absolutely. After a hearing the following week at which she said she could neither eat nor sleep since the incident, the court decided to hold Brian without bond. Again, fair. Cheryl Williams expressed hope that perhaps this development could lead to some kind of resolution regarding her son's disappearance. She said, and I quote, Brian's not going to let Denise run around alone with all that money. I'm praying he doesn't commit suicide. I'm praying he'll tell us what actually happened. End quote. Damn. Could you imagine holding, like having this, so much time has gone by. Yes. And this poor woman has just tried so fucking hard while still managing to run a daycare out of her home and still like be a functioning person. I think I would just that. be a blob of disaster. And now you're the possible answers you're looking for rests in an incredibly desperate suicidal man. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oof. I don't feel good. <laughs> Big oof. So in December of 2017, Brian Winchester was sentenced to 20 years in prison for the kidnapping with credit for 502 days served to be followed by 15 years probation. His attorney told the court that he was suicidal that day due to not only the divorce, but also his mother's recent terminal cancer diagnosis and the decision by his teenage son from his first marriage to move in with his mother. Well, I wonder why. It sounds like a bunch of Delulu crazy is happening here right currently. (laughs) It sure does. 
His attorney argued for the 10-year mandatory minimum. Prosecutors countered that Winchester's actions that day indicated that he was planning a murder-suicide that was only averted by Denise's quick thinking and asked the court for the 45-year maximum. Winchester was then imprisoned at the Wakula Correctional Institution. There was no mention made of Mike's case at Brian's sentencing, none whatsoever, although state attorney Jack Campbell told the media that he hoped that the case against Brian would help authorities solve that disappearance. Fingers so fucking crossed. People, you know, were really hoping that now that Brian had gotten himself in some hot water, that maybe they would learn something more. Because at this point, that's what they needed. They right. needed something new to come in. Because, again, suspicions don't lead to convictions. Exactly. <laughs> Man, good thing, right? Right. <laughs> Later on, it was reported that Brian had actually reached an agreement with prosecutors before his sentencing that they would neither seek a life sentence on the kidnapping charge nor introduce certain evidence at the hearing. So Brian was then guaranteed immunity in Mike's death if he offered true details and testimony against Denise. That's a fucking big fucking deal. Immunity? Yeah. Shit. He was also given a break on his sentence for the kidnapping of Denise. <laughs> I love when you get fed up. <laughs> no, because I I've done the research. I've read this uh, multiple times right. now, and I'm still I'm like I just can't fucking believe it. Yeah, still. Mm -hmm. So the next day at a news conference, Mark Perez, the FDLE's special agent in charge, announced to assembled reporters that Mike's body had been found. It had been determined that he was the victim of a homicide. They declined to release any details of how he had been killed, who might be a suspect, or any person of interest, or where the body itself had been found. They also said that they were withholding those details since only the perpetrators would be expected to know it. Which Susan and I have been coming to learn that that's pretty common police practice, and honestly, you know? It makes sense. It makes sense. Why Especially would you share something that shit? like this that's shrouded in so much mystery and it's literally been decades now. Yeah. So, you know, I get it. I well, if you don't have a conviction, you shouldn't be putting that shit no. out there. Absolutely. It, no. It's one thing if like other people's safety is at risk. Like when we've talked about, you know, Dennis Rader or like the Ken and Barbie yeah. killers, you know, people like that. This is very clearly like a, a one off situation, yes. for lack of a better term. This was a specific victim yes. for a specific reason. Exactly. Now, later, the FDLE revealed that they had found Mike Williams' remains at the end of a dead-end road in northern Leon County, which is five miles from where he grew up, actually. This spot was 50 miles away from Lake Seminole, where Mike had allegedly been eaten by alligators. They were confirmed as his remains after a match was made with his mother DNA. So we were able to get 100% confirmation this is Mike Williams. Accurate, yes. No other details were provided at that time, but they did share that they received that information on where the body was in early October 2017. So what they did was they told County Public Works employees that they were... They had to do like some training exercises. So they brought in like all these backhoes and they spent five 16 hour days just digging nine foot deep holes in the mud at one corner of the lake. And they also had to like hold the lake water back with dams and pumps. It was a whole thing. And eventually it, it was a lot. Eventually the FDLE was just like, you know what, let's call in a private contractor to finish this up. 
On October 18th, the team of search dogs and officers finally found Mike Williams's uh, remains in the piles of dirt stacked on plywood sheets. An FDLE source told the Tallahassee Democrat that 98% of his bones were recovered. They were all very well preserved, as was some of the clothing he had been wearing, such as winter gloves and boots. Two DNA tests matched the remains with his mother's sample, like we mentioned. But I feel like with stuff like that, they like to be sure before they're just saying, well, we found it. After a decade and a half. Yeah. Over that. Like, right. I would also want to triple check before I go and tell Cheryl Williams. For what's sure. Up, you Especially know? because she had still been clinging to that hope that Mike would be found alive somewhere. Yeah. Can't blame her. On May 8th, 2018. Denise Williams was arrested at Florida State University as she left work to go celebrate her daughter's 19th birthday. And she, that poor kid. I know. Like, she's been traumatized once, and now she's being traumatized again. Could you imagine finding out, like, your dad tragically dies. You'd think he was eaten by alligators right. when you were, like, a baby. And then you find out when you're an adult that... Your mom had a hand in it? Like, or at least... Might could have been enough right. that she got arrested. Right. This arrest occurred literally minutes after a grand jury had indicted her on charges of first degree murder, conspiracy to commit first degree murder, and accessory after the fact. That's some hefty stuff. Those there, are some friends. serious charges. <laughs> yes. Prosecutors continued to keep the details of the crime to themselves, stating that they would share them in court when the time came. They did say, however, that they would seek to have her denied bail. Denise's Good. attorney declined to comment at that time, saying that he had not had time to review the case because, like we said, it was very quick. As soon as they got the go-ahead, they knew where she was. Right. Well, and their star witness was cooling his heels still at Wakula Correctional Institute. Right, right, right. <laughs> his attorney said that his client would take the stand at trial if legally compelled to do so. However, the attorney did not think Brian Winchester would be charged in that case as well, because it turns out he had immunity, right. as we later found out. Yep, yep. Two FDLE officers went to Cheryl Williams's house immediately following the indictment to inform her. She didn't actually speak to the media about how she reacted to the news. I'm going to guess it was not well, because like I said, she'd still been holding out that hope that her son was alive somewhere. So this and was just a double whammy. None of us need to be privileged to that moment. Uh, yeah, honestly, it's none of our damn business anyways. <laughs> yeah, I think we could all surmise how she reacted. And like right. you said, probably not great. So a three page indictment was released two days later. This revealed that prosecutors believed Denise allegedly began conspiring with Brian in March of 2000, nine months before her first husband disappeared. Brian is alleged to have killed Mike with a gun. The accessory charge suggested that sometime between August 2014 and the day Brian was sentenced, Denise had allegedly helped him avoid prosecution or being arrested for the crime. That all makes sense. Right. So far, this all checks out. Ethan Way, Denise's lawyer, said his client was innocent of all these charges. Quote, she had absolutely nothing to do with Mike Williams' disappearance and had absolutely nothing to do with any of the crimes that Brian Winchester committed. End quote. He said that he found it convenient that the indictment came after Winchester had been in prison for several months. And on behalf of Denise, he entered a plea of not guilty. Okay. <laughs> nice try. I can see where you might could make that argument, but it just 
doesn't have a lot of weight, I don't think. Right. So in late June of 2018, Denise Williams was ordered held without bond with trial date set for September 24th. Audio of Brian Winchester's interview with the FDLE was played in court. In it, Brian confessed to pulling the trigger, but claims that killing Mike was all Denise's idea. Her defense argued that the tape should not have been admitted as, as evidence since Brian was not charged with anything despite his admission. The prosecution said it simply asked him to tell the truth about what happened. Denise wound up going to trial in December. And this is where it got even weirder. The state's star witness was in fact Brian Winchester, and he testified at length about how he and Denise had never really ended their high school relationship, even after they both married others. So another plot twist. They were cheating with each other. Bad, bad people. Kathy Thomas, Winchester's first wife, told the jury that she had suspected the two of having an affair in the late 90s when they frequently double dated with Mike and Denise. That's so fucked up. Wouldn't that be some shit? You're like sitting at dinner and you can just, you just know, like, yeah, just have a feeling like. Reddit is a cesspool of really <laughs> gross human beings. Yeah. And so I follow a lot of like, uh, am I the asshole post, things like that. But I follow this one that kind of pulls from all different subreddits and there's straight like cheating, adultery, how to be like the significant other, like, or how to be the mistress. Crazy shit. Crazy, no. crazy shit. No. And people take like pride in having an affair right under their partner's noses. And I just, there's like levels to it. That's like extracurricularly fucked also, up. Also, the fact that you're boasting about it on Reddit just makes it even more cringe. There's like whole communities dedicated to being like, you go girl, like you be his mistress or you, you go cheat with that lady. Like I just, ew, it's really gross. Ew. I, I've had I to slow down. I know humanity sucks, but like, ugh. That just unlocked a new level up that I didn't know existed. Yeah. Mark and I were like, maybe we should stop with social media for a little bit. And I'm like, kind of necessary for the podcast, but I'm definitely going right. to back away because gross. So that was fun, you know, for Kathy, I'm sure, to, oh. <laughs> to have to relive in court. Brian did say in his confession, which a tape of which was played for the jury that the affair had started in 1997 at a sister Hazel concert with their spouses outside parking the car and things just snowballed heavy air quotes. That's not how that works though. Like, but all right. Like, I love when people uh, are like, it was an accident. Like, Oh my God. Like, oops. <laughs> what? You tripped and fell. There's and this so is so many happened? choices that go into doing that. <sighs> So after discreetly rekindling their relationship, allegedly discreetly, it doesn't seem that discreet to me. I was going to say, according to who? Right. The two began to consider killing Mike so that they could get together, mostly because Denise's family frowned on divorce for religious reasons. She also didn't really want to split custody of her daughter with Mike. Wait, so divorce isn't cool, but murder is fine? Uh, apparently. Okay. That's, Adultery? That's where, that's where the line is drawn Adultery is divorce. Adultery is also fine, mm -hmm. but divorce is... Okay. Those first two, I think, are in the commandments, right? I don't know much about it, but that's like one and two. I don't two. recall like, reading anything about like, thou shall not divorce, right. but I could be wrong. Uh, Denise suggested staging a boating accident on the Gulf of Mexico where they could throw both Mike and Kathy overboard. What the fuck? But here's where Brian drew the line. He <laughs> didn't want to kill his children's mother. Right. 
But but killing another child's father is completely fine. Yeah. Apparently. And, and your best friend. Uh, apparently that's all right. Cool, cool, cool. Just making sure that the, I know where your morals stand, Brian. The things that people tell themselves to make things okay it just will never the make mental, sense to me. The mental gymnastics that right. people will do just, to justify it, their behavior. Yes. It's crazy. So he rejected any plans for a murder at Mike's office because they wanted it to look like a robbery. Like, Denise was really getting creative here. Brian was like, you know what? What if we made it look like a hunting accident? So, you know, this was mostly because he had previously saved Mike from a quicksand situation, I guess, when the two were hunting at one point. They regularly went hunting at uh, Carr Lake, which was north of Tallahassee, and Mike had actually fallen into a mud hole. The ground just seemed to kind of collapse beneath him, almost like quicksand. And soon Mike was scrambling for help. Per Brian, direct quote, I remember telling Denise about that and how if I hadn't been there, if I hadn't helped him out, he very likely would have disappeared and nobody would have known what happened to him. End quote. Yikes. I can't help but feel like he told her that story just kind of like, oh shit, like, did you know this thing happened? You know, during pillow talk, obviously. And she was like, oh, you know what? That's such a good idea. Let's kill him. Ugh. So on the day that Mike disappeared... Brian Winchester enticed him to Lake Seminole for duck hunting. Once out on the water, he had gotten Mike to put the waders on, then pushed him out of the boat, thinking he'd be unable to resurface and thus he would drown. However, Mike managed to get to a tree stump because, you know, there's all those loose stumps just lying about in this reservoir. Mm -hmm. So then Brian decided the best way to take care of this was to fire a single shotgun blast to Mike's face, killing him immediately. Since Mike's death could no longer be passed off as a boating accident, Brian buried the body where it was later found. He then cleaned out his truck and went to a family Christmas party like nothing was wrong. This is where he eventually learned that a search was underway for Mike and then proceeded to take part in said search. Right. The motherfucking audacity of these people. Well, And then, you know, he and Denise, they took it slow, quote unquote, Oof. after Mike's quote unquote accident. Both to let the insurance money earn further interest and to, you know, try to avoid any kind of suspicion. Not be so blatantly in your face suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't the work. kidnapping that had led to his imprisonment was his reaction to fear that Denise would reveal the truth about what had happened to Mike. And now that now that she and Brian were divorcing, that was what he had said in court, basically. Like I he was, he was scared. Was terrified that, the truth that she was, was gonna blow this whole situation because we're divorcing and I didn't want that to happen pretty much. And I mean, it kind of makes sense because it kind of seems like it was a very, like it was premeditated, but like to what degree? Right. Right. It kind of seems like he woke up and he was like, yeah, fuck. And then just did things. Right. (laughs) That was a panic response, I guess, to being found out kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. Again, it's all speculation. <laughs> I don't want to know what's in Brian Winchester's head, frankly. I hardcore will pass <laughs> on that. Prosecutors also played a taped phone conversation in which Kathy Thomas, who was working with police at the time, had told Denise that she knew the truth about the crime. Each time she brought it up, Denise attempted to change the subject. At one point, Denise asked, what do you know? <laughs> like, you're not guilty what? when you say that. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, Assistant State Attorney John Bush's, I don't know. It looks like, (laughs) yeah, 
I'm, I'm bad with names. I'm sorry. And Google Words only helps me so much. I just with wish this. that you guys could see us beforehand try so hard to figure it out. And we're so confident. We're like, we have this. And then we get to the name or the whatever it is, like that Apachola River. Yeah. <laughs> like, what is this? I read the word and my brain goes derp and I come up with. Well, my brain's like panic, panic before you even try. Right. Don't even try to say it. Just, Just say immediately nonsense. fuck it up. <laughs> so at any rate, John said of this evasiveness, as well as Denise's dispassionate response when Brian told her how he had killed Mike, demonstrated how cold bloodedly she had helped plan the crime that happened on her behalf, pretty much. Right. Her attorney argued in response that there was no physical evidence linking Denise to the crime and that it had been entirely Brian Winchester's idea. He was incredulous that Brian Winchester was not on trial despite having actually admitted to committing the murder himself. After four days of testimony, the jury took eight hours to convict Denise of all the charges. Her attorney said that Denise would appeal the conviction, which she went on to do so, I believe, in February of 2019, she was then sentenced to life in prison. She did not speak or offer any kind of argument on her behalf. At that point, what is there to say? The only person to address the court besides the lawyers was Cheryl Williams. She said that justice had finally been served. She also said that Denise had taken not only her son, but also her granddaughter away from her. Oh, so right. sad. Five months later, Mike and Denise's daughter, Ansley was awarded all assets of her late father's estate and insurance monies that was originally due to Denise. Her mother had signed them over to her to avoid a prosecution on three counts of insurance fraud. As part of the deal, Ainsley was not allowed to use any of that money on her mother's legal fees, and if she were to do so, she would owe the state a penalty of $150,000. I actually thought that was an interesting caveat. I, I like that they put that in there because... I know this girl lost her mother and her father. You know what I mean? But like, I guess some small silver lining is that she got what was rightfully intended to be hers at the end of the day. Right. Because we the one thing we do know is that Mike's intention for that life insurance policy was to make sure his daughter would be taken care of were something to happen. Right. It's unfortunate that it went this long. Right. And it took. All of this to get there, but I, you know, and plus, I mean, I do find it really interesting. A lot of states have laws in place where you can't like profit off of crimes and stuff. So I guess it would have been really easy for her to turn around and be like, well, I'm going to pay for a really expensive lawyer for you. Right. I found it really interesting. I'm kind of glad she can't. I know that's what she would want to do with the money, but. I know. No, I would never judge her for wanting to like help her mom out, but I can't imagine she would. I don't know. I would feel some type of way, I think, <laughs> yeah. after all that. But who knows what. I believe she thinks her mom is innocent and f- falsely imprisoned. Interesting. I mean, I could see that. I think she thinks it was all Brian. So it was all her stepdad. Was the one that pulled the trigger. Right. Right. So at any rate, Denise is now imprisoned at the Florida Women's Reception Center. She did appeal her conviction and life sentence in January of 2020. Her attorney argued before the Florida First District Court of Appeals that there was no evidence that she was involved in the commission of the murder. And if there was, maybe, her role was minor (laughs) at best. In November of 2020, the murder conviction was overturned. This meant that Denise could have potentially been released after serving only 21 months of her sentence. 
wouldn't that have been some shit? <laughs> yeah, right? The court ruled that the state hadn't successfully proven that Denise had helped Brian Winchester carry out the murder. However, the conspiracy to commit murder conviction was upheld. This was accompanied by a 30-year sentence. So her ass is still in jail where she belongs, in my humble opinion. Yeah. I'm sad that it took them that long to get there, but I'm glad that they got there. I just don't understand how murder is the better choice out of divorce. This is not an uncommon theme. I feel like we do discuss this a lot here at Crime like why, and Spirit. Why is murder the easier? Like, just leave. Well, that, just leave. The adultery, the murder, that stuff's not as bad as divorce. God forbid divorce. It wasn't even like he was a violent dude. Like, I, I, can, under, I can understand if somebody is like, this is my only way out. Right. But that did not seem to be the case. That was... There's a clip of them in on the news literally having just given birth. Like they were both like so enamored with their life. And I don't know. I don't know. Obviously, we're not privileged and stuff, but I just don't get it. Why murder? Why would that be your first thought? I, I just don't get it. It's <laughs> like I just want to ask these kinds of people, like these people, like, do you feel like it was worth it? Do you think that you should have just picked divorce? Right. Should you have just done it? Is this the rest of your life and worth the- it? I guess what gets me is the fact that she's like, no, I didn't do it. I don't know how Brian came up with this plan all by himself. Bitch, bye. (laughs) I just, I don't know. Like, I I could see how somebody can make the argument for it, but it just doesn't feel like that's what the situation is. It just doesn't seem right. Right. I I don't know. Yeah. I'd love to know what you guys think. You're going to have to let us know. Yes, absolutely. What your thoughts are. And you guys can do that. As long as you're following us on all of our social medias. But also, if you listen on Spotify, there's actually this really cool thing uh, where you can swipe up and you can tell us like what your thoughts were about the case and stuff like that. And I would really encourage you guys to do so because we want to have some conversations. We want to open a dialogue with you guys. We love hearing from you. I yeah. don't know if we've mentioned this once or twice or 50,000 times, <laughs> but it really does make our day. I'm going to continue to mention <laughs> it until you guys start doing it. Well, some of you are doing it, but we yes. want more. We want more of you. Right. And that, my friends, is where we're going to kind of cut things for today. So as always, thank you guys for hanging out. Thank you so much for all of your support. We're just incredibly grateful for each and every single one of you who comes and listens and hangs out with us for a little while. Be sure, like we mentioned, that you're following the podcast on social media so we can all hang out, have all the dialogues. On Facebook and Instagram, we're at Crime and Spirits Pod. On TikTok, we're at Crime and Spirits Podcast. This is where you'll find ingredients, recipes, fun videos showing you how to make each drink, little tidbits that we just like to include just for fun. Check it out. If you'd like to follow us personally, you can find us on Instagram. I am at Suze, not Susan. And I am at Bree, B-R-E-E, underscore, not the cheese. If you're into what we're doing over here, which we really, really hope that you are, please consider leaving us a rating and or review. It really helps us out, gets us out there a little bit more. And like we mentioned, really makes our day. Uh, Also, if you would like to recommend a case or a cocktail or any kind of anything for us to check out, you can email us at crimeandspiritspodcast at gmail.com. DM us in any fashion, really. We actually have a listener request on the docket for next week. So I'm very excited. Very excited. I guess technically this was kind of a listener request. Mm -hmm. Mark helps us out sometimes. Yeah. He's he's a really good, like, 
what are what are people listening to nowadays kind of thing <laughs> comes up with stuff that i've never heard of yeah. so i can appreciate I that i hope you guys <laughs> enjoyed today's story yes first and foremost yes that too and if you are interested in becoming a monthly supporter of our podcast there's a link for that in the show notes feel free to smash that link all right so instead of like a joke i think i have more of what's considered a little like a, a silly cringy riddle and i tried it on mark and as per usual it it killed <laughs> okay so the question is david's father has three sons snap crackle and pop it's david oh that's funny <laughs> ah, yes Duh. Mark was like well you said it weird i was like no i literally said it how it's supposed to be it's so <laughs> that you'll get tricked right i love it i know right and on that note, we're going to skedaddle. Remember, my friends, if you are sipping along with us, please do so responsibly. We love to talk with you about crimes. We just don't want to talk about your crimes. Right. So stay home, drink some water, eat some food, just relax, kick back, have a good time. Listen to some episodes from our back catalog. Go check out other ones on Podmos. There's lots of good choices over there. And we will see you guys next time. See ya. Bye. Bye.